We're in Ephesians, uh, last couple weeks of Ephesians. So this week and next. Next Sunday, actually, Silas is going to be preaching for the first time in our community. So make plans to come back. It's the last sermon in the series. And um, it's on that passage from Ephesians 6 where it's about the armor of God. So really excited about that. And you can always get that online. So if you can't be here, you can hear Silas. And he's going to be here for a long time. So (laughs) So, uh, looking forward to having him preach. But today we're in kind of the last half of Ephesians 5, first part of Ephesians 6, this whole section about relationships. And we're going to be looking at kind of how relationship matters this morning or why relationships matter. So before we dive into that, let's take a moment to pray. God, thanks for uh, the chance we have now as a community to, to dive into your word together. Um, this is, again, one of those things that we aren't that good at, God. Um, opening scripture and community. We, we often go into these things and these conversations on our own, and we, we want your spirit to enliven our body. Um, even as Paul has talked about us being one body, one, one flesh, united to you, um, would that continuing union uh, happen this morning as we're sitting next to each other and learning and reading scripture and then communing together later in this service? We thank you that your spirit is with us, um, that your spirit's alive, active, that it will challenge us as we even open ourselves to it. It will uh, bring us to new um, steps of faith um, and then really equip us to be a presence of hope in the places we live and work and serve. Thank you that you're doing that this morning, God, through your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, real quick question, kind of a straw poll, and there's no shame. How many of you are on Facebook? Have face- Not right now, but have a Facebook account. Like, so that's quite a few of us. I know some of us dropped Facebook uh, like about a year ago. But whatever you think about Facebook, now it's, I mean, it's the 1.2 billion users in the world. So it's by far the largest social network in the world. And uh, what that means is that either through your own use or someone's use in your life, if you ditched Facebook, but someone in your life, it's a spouse, one of your children probably, you know, one day, uh, or a close friend or a coworker, it's, it's changing the way in which you relate to them. And here's what I mean by that. I recently read an article on that very renowned and, and uh, yeah, credible British publication, The Guardian. <laughs> so, but it was a really good article. It's not, not newsy. It's kind of more like, I think The Guardian is like the USA Today of England, is it? I mean, I don't know much about it, but I probably just threw all the British people under the bus. I'm sorry. But this article talks about, uh, this author is telling this story that I think will resonate with anybody who's ever been to summer camp or who has kids that are at summer camp right now. And she writes this, when I was a little girl, everyone at summer camp was going to be best friends forever. A few weeks away can feel like a lifetime to an adolescent, and the minor trials of those times, homesickness, secrets, social crises, skin needs, they loomed large. Camp, this author says, would conclude with a group of sing-alongs, or uh, group sing-alongs, tears, the exchange of addresses, and then you know this, earnest promises that the closeness and unity formed in those endless sunny days would last forever. And of course it never did. But she says, I still vividly remember getting in the mail a package from a camp friend containing a pen-scribbled loyal letter, pages long, you've probably gotten one of these, and a tiny box of plastic earrings, which I received with equal measure of, of shock and guilt, having never expected such an earnest delivery on my friend's promise, and I was wholly unprepared to reply. But that, she says, here's the key, uh, was a lifetime ago. Indeed, The young girls and boys of today who are right now attending summer camps across the country, many of our own friends, won't feel the overwhelming obligation to return 
a friend's letter, they will simply add them on Facebook, and voila, instant friendship. So the author is just spot on, isn't she? Like completely spot on. We live in a, an era of just casual friendship, casual relationship. Our mo- and I, we know this, our most important relationships, those that if you think of the people who you're closest to in your life, um, whether those began at summer camp, in early adolescence, or much later in a college dorm room, or in a faith community like this, they weren't forged through chance encounters on your social media feed or through cheap and overused social media gestures. Uh, Real relationships are forged through years of long suffering together, emotional labor on one another's behalf, um, calls across time zones, long letters like this one this woman talked about, uh, scraped together plane tickets, you know, you're trying to fly to see a friend at their wedding or their dad's funeral, screaming fights and then vulnerable reconciliations. Have you ever had one of those? You fought with somebody and then you get together years later and go, please forgive me. Um, we all know this, that people can grow up to be very different from us. They can lead, you've been to a 10-year reunion, lead very different lives elsewhere in the year, world, and yet they remain immutably and always your friend forever because the love and the effort you both gave and received in relationship, right? All which is to say that quality and intimacy, as well as stability and consistency, those are the four things, Quality, intimacy, stability, consistency, those are the things that are the, the key ingredients to all relationships, all good relationships. And you, you, can't, get those, you can't get those casually on Facebook. And, and I'm not saying Facebook's bad or evil, but you can't forge those through social media. Social media, as much as Facebook would like to f- say they facilitate friendship, cannot facilitate intimacy and, and stability and consistency and those kinds of things. It just can't do it. And which is why what Paul offers here in Ephesians 5 and then early 6 regarding relationships is so vital to consider. So this, this section of Ephesians is really, you'll see it, it kind of talks about different relationships. It offers us all the resources we need for developing deep, intimate, genuinely connected relationships that promise to enliven our lives. So quick, quick side note, if you take this section that we're going to be in, Ephesians 5.15 to 6.9, as a section, which most scholars do, you're going to quickly notice that it's going to be hard for any person, especially this person, to try and talk about everything in one sermon. Like, we'd be here all week. Um, there's just too much material. It's too complex. Like, there's marriage. And this vexing, uh, confusing, infuriating issue of male headship in there. And uh, what do we do with that, right? There's parenting. And in a church like ours, you saw the kids get up, and, like, I could never talk enough about parenting, right? I could just talk all day long about it, and you're going to be taking notes. Like, wow, yeah, because I'm failing. There's slavery, which even though considered textually or contextually is different in Paul's day than today, I just want to say this. I think we can all agree <laughs> that slavery in any era, whether it was the first church or today, because slavery is just as bad today as it was then, uh, is evil. It's evil to use people for economic means, uh, to use a person, an image bearer of God, for your own means. And that's led to immense brokenness, not only outside the church, but inside the church, right? Uh, And so you can quickly see, there's just way too much for anyone to address in one sermon, so I'm not going to do it like that. What I'd like us to do instead is kind of look at this at a more macro level, kind of more holistic, and explore sort of three themes that cut through these chapters or this section, and, and kind of think of this like an intimacy framework that Paul's offering to us. Uh, a way to sort of say, how do we pursue deep, intimate relationships in a shallow, 
a superficial, sort of relationally superficial world, okay? How do we do that? And I think Paul offers some things in here. Specifically, we're going to look at three broad themes. So we're going to look at the, and this is in your outline that you got in the bulletin, but we're going to look at the undergirding power that, that must infuse every relationship. We're going to look at the, uh, the overarching principle that has to cover every relationship. And then we'll look at the definitive person that has to, to be inside of each relationship. So, and you should be able to remember this, the power, the principle, the person, three Ps. It's got to be inspired, right? So there you go. So first, the power. And this is in that first section that Silas read, verses 15 to 20, or 15 to 21. And having, actually, having said that, let me just do a little grammar work with you. So verse 21, which is that verse, uh, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, is often like thought of as a bridge between these two different subjects. So you have verses 18 to 20, or you know, 15 to 20. It's all about being filled with the Spirit. You guys kind of heard that, right? It's all about Spirit. And then verse 22 kind of picks up, and there's your section about what? Marriage. You have wives and husbands in there. That's another topic. And even in many Bibles, they start with a new section. I don't know how many of your Bibles have like little section breaks and headers. Uh, mine has one that says at verse 21, instructions for Christian households. Boom. And, and I just want to tell you, that's actually not there in the Greek. That w- those section headings are put there in translations. So you could just take a, a Sharpie, cut them out, because um, those don't exist. They're not meant to be there. They're there for readability, but sometimes that readability lends itself to a lot of issues. And so the people who interpret these passages for us, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've said, well, verse 21 is this sort of bridge uh, between these two unrelated topics, and that's totally, totally wrong. So for a couple reasons. Number one, if you were to read, if you were to open this in Greek, and you could do this, like just find a Greek New Testament online, and you don't have to worry about reading Greek, and you just kind of look through verses 17 to 21. Don't worry about not knowing the language. You're going to quickly see that verses 17 to 21 form one complete sentence. It's one sentence. It's lengthy. (laughs) There's several sort of verbs in there and like all kinds of adjectives and stuff, but it's one sentence. So even if you had no Greek training, you're going to see that verse 21 in this English text is actually part of verses 15 to, to 20. It's part of the previous subject about the Spirit. And so it's not like Paul had this bridge, like, I, I gave you the sermon on the, on, you know, on the Spirit. Now we're going to have a sermon on marriage. You know, I gave you a sermon on the Spirit. Let's talk about parenting or slavery. No, it's, it's that 20, 21's not a bridge. It's not a new theme. It's, it's part of the previous theme. And here's how, if you read it literally, this is, I'll just give you an English translation of those verses. This is what Paul says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk on wine, with, which, is, which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting, <laughs> there it is, it's not, a, it's not a period, it's a comma, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? Now, I hear someone in the room saying, well, that's interesting, thanks for that. I mean, why does it make a difference? Because it's, it's clear that if you read the next passage about wives and husbands, even if verse 21 is part of the previous paragraph, I mean, the next passage is really about submission, and so that, that verse kind of belongs with the next passage, doesn't it? And, and actually, why does it matter? Let me just tell you why. By including the idea of submission in, in verse 21 with what belongs to the previous, uh, with the previous idea, Holy Spirit, Paul's exhortation toward fullness in the Spirit 
what I think he's doing is, is he's saying there's not two subjects here. Like I said, there's not a, a subject about the Spirit and then relationships. You don't have those sermons going on. Instead, it's all one. It's all one. In other words, the biblical model he, I'm about to give you for marriage, parenting, even inside a broken system like slavery, because it was broken then, it's broken now. Um, I'm giving you this, this, this new approach, to, radical new approach to human relationships that has to, fl- this new music of your heart has to flow and pervasive gratitude has to flow from the Spirit. You cannot attempt to, uh, this radical new approach to relationships it ha- that involves mutual submission, s- sacrifice, obedience, impartiality, can only ever be understood uh, and entered into out of the fullness of the Spirit. There's no other way to do it. So let me put it another way. You've probably seen this on TV. Like you'll see a magic show or, you know, uh, <laughs> you'll see people like doing stunts. Like uh, what's that one, the, the Great Race, or what's the one where the, the, they're doing the, the, the people that win that thing? American, American Idol? No. What's it, what? Yeah, the Ninja Warrior one, not American Idol. I, you didn't say it. You said a Ninja Warrior. I thought I heard Idol, but whatever. Same thing. American Idol. Um, you'll, you'll see them doing these things, and then the announcer will say, boys and girls, don't try this at home. You don't have the right equipment. These are trained professionals. Like, you've seen that, right? And um, which simply means, I think what Paul is saying is before he starts to say, wives, do this. Husbands, do this. Parents, this. Children, this. Slaves and masters, this. He's saying, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. Don't try this without the Holy Spirit. Because don't dare attempt to submit or sacrificially serve or obey without the deep indwelling of the Spirit of God. It will kill you. It will kill you if you try. In fact, it will kill your spirit. It will most likely, and we see this all the time, it will destroy, most likely destroy your relationships. Because you're trying out of your own flesh. And Paul talks about that all the time. Don't live from the flesh. Live from the Spirit. It's almost like Paul's creating a relational firewall here saying, make sure... These things are in place before you. Make sure the Spirit is deeply infusing your life before you enter into the covenant of marriage. That's why he says in another place, don't be unequally yoked. Make sure that you're, you're entering into that, that relationship equally covenanted with the Holy Spirit enlivening that, that relationship. Make sure as you raise your children that the Spirit of God's humility and, and teachability has taken root in your life. Don't try and parent kids without humility in your life because you're going to mess it up. And, you, you know, it's not a once and done, by the way. I'm learning humility through my children and their relation, that relationship. But I go to the Spirit to receive humility. Make sure that you face down broken systems. Indeed, attempt to live the Christian life within them, as we often have to do even today, uh, that the Spirit of God is leading and guiding you and giving you courage and strength and wisdom and discernment to respond. You know, protest is an act of the Spirit often. But you don't, don't do that out of your own flesh and anger respond to how the Spirit is leading you, okay? So he's saying that there's a power and an absolute prerequisite here, the fullness of God's Spirit. Without it, this model I'm going to give you of relationships will not work. Just don't try it. Now, I'm sure, if you, I'm sure some of you are now like this. Well, great, but how? Like, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Because I've, you know, I'm Presbyterian. No, uh, like, I don't know. These guys are the most Spirit-filled people I know. But uh, how do I, I don't know how that would look. It sounds good, but how does it happen? Like my marriage and my relationship with my children, my sense of hopelessness or hope as I look at the world, I, don't, I just feel so discouraged right now. I don't even know where to begin. Or I think about work tomorrow, 
and I got a horrible boss or people that are very not spirit-filled that are there and just suck the life out of me, how do I be God's presence in that place? So that's a great question. It's, <laughs> it's another sermon. But let me give you a quick practical thought toward that end so you have something to go home with. It's actually in verses 19 to 20 that Paul says something that I think really speaks toward that. So look again at Ephesians 5. He says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Lord. Uh, sing, make music with your, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So did you hear it? What's the, what's the principle here for receiving the Spirit? It's gratitude. That's gratitude. It's the practice of gratefulness that makes possible. Gratefulness is really a catalyst for the Spirit to begin working into our life. Uh, it's just, that's, that's one of the ways, or probably the key way, the Spirit of God get, begins to flow in our lives. Uh, Paul's saying, get good at practicing gratitude. I mean, that's really the key for experiencing the infilling of the Spirit. Now, I've shared before the work of David Steindl Rast. He's a Benedictine uh, monk from Austria, and I think he has some of the most instructive teaching on gratitude out there. You can get his YouTube video. He's, he's from Austria. He's like in his 90s. He's like Gandalf. Okay, he's really awesome. And he lived through a world war, the end of an empire, a fascist regime in his country. And so he has something to say about how to be grateful. Like he has some lived experience. If he's talking about gratitude, I'm listening. Because he didn't grow up in sort of, you know, middle-class America, never had any problems. Like, you know, Spokane, like gratitude, easy, right? Austria, World War II, fascism, difficult. So in one place, he talks about, um, he's often asked for practical guidance because on gratefulness, because gratitude has become sort of culturally superficial. Like, it's all over. Talk about Facebook. It's, there's, like, Facebook memes everywhere about gratefulness and cat videos and whatnot. And it's kind of cliche inside Christian circles as well. Like, just be grateful. Yeah. And you think, like, just put a happy face on, right? And so he says, actually, it's, it's, there's actually a methodology to gratefulness that I find very helpful. And he, he frames that as beholding. Beholding. And here's how he breaks it down. He says, it, it, it starts this way. Beholding begins with stopping. So he says, most of us are caught up in our schedules so deeply, at deadlines, we're rushing around. The first thing we have to do to experience gratefulness is stop. Just stop. And, and, and because otherwise, we're just not really coming into the present moment at all. We can't be grateful for anything. We can't appreciate the opportunity the moment really affords to us because we're rushing right by it. And he says, the key is it doesn't have to be a long moment. This is a split second especially when you start practicing a lot, can be enough. Just a split second, and gratitude can flow into your life. And then he says, while you're stopping, the next thing is look. So stop, then look. And looking is a way of just asking yourself, what's the opportunity in this moment for me to to see God? What's unique about this moment? What's the gift in this moment? What's beautiful and praiseworthy in this moment? Uh, And that's where beholding comes in. So if we really see the opportunity in the moment— we must, he says, of course be grateful because you're going you're to learn to see the things around you like other people. If you were to look around this room, you're going to be grateful because there are amazing, beautiful, faithful people in this room. Um, there's creation. There's a rich diversity of cultures in our world. There's amazing tastes. Like we just rush through meals without ever savoring the moment of that hand-cooked, beautiful meal whether you eat in a restaurant or at home. There's children. There's hot coffee on Sunday. There's beautiful music. There's so much we can be grateful for if we just stop and, and, and look. And then Rast stresses this in, this in this deal. He says, not 
everything that's been given, this is so important, not everything that's been given uh, is a moment for gratitude. Not everything, but every moment. He says you can't be grateful for war you, uh, there, or violence, domestic violence, sickness. You, these are not things that God intended. And so uh, these, are, these are not things you should be grateful for, but in every moment. There's a difference between the moment and the thing. In every moment you can be grateful. For instance, he says, the opportunity to learn from war for him, the opportunity to learn in that moment, or a spouse's or loved one's battle with illness, or a job loss, or a broken relationship. We can learn from all those moments. We can learn from the moment. And, and we can say, even in protest, we can stand up and take a stand, saying, no, this isn't the way that God designed the world. And so I'm, I'm, I'm standing I'm against cancer. I'm standing against parents being separated from children. I'm standing against racism. I'm standing against religiously motivated violence. None of these things belong. I'm stopping. I'm looking. I'm beholding. These are wonderful gifts. And I get to learn inside those moments. Not, not be grateful for the moment itself, but for the opportunity. Right? So opportunity is the key. Not for everything, but every moment. And if you do that, what Paul is saying here, if you try practicing gratitude in the moment... Just take moments as they come. The promise is the fullness of the Spirit. And that will enliven your relationships. And so you just, that's, that's just your little takeaway. Biblical relationships will not work without the fullness of the Spirit. Okay? They won't work. Which brings us to the second thing here, which is this principle. So you have the, the power, the Spirit, and the principle that must guide the, the relationships that we're in. And it's in verse 21, this bridge, this so-called bridge, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, okay? So the idea that Paul's teaching that has to govern all relationships and that can only flow out of a deep empowerment of the Spirit is really simple. It's mutual submission, okay? Which in that time, and I would even say even today, even in a very kind of liberal city like Seattle, is radically revolutionary, like, and probably not for the reasons we think it is. And here's what I mean by that. For most of us, what follows in verse 22 Frankly, what bothers me about this passage is where it says, wives submit. In fact, I told Silas, don't read that. <laughs> like, because I don't want anybody just to be bummed, right? Um, that verse is really why some of us quit. Like, we just quit reading it. We close our Bibles. We quit going to church. This is why a lot of people I know outside the church say that they don't like Christians. Um, you know, many of us are up to here with Christianity. Uh, and, and, and this passage really is, is hard for us to digest. How can Paul say that? Like, look at the impact on women, on our girls, uh, on marriages, on society. And look how the church has appropriated it for generations. I mean, seriously, we've gotten this so wrong. There's been subjugation, generations of women's and girls. I have a 13-year-old daughter that haven't had the opportunity to speak from the pulpit because of this. Wives submit. They don't get to work outside the home. Wives submit. And their, their profound strength has been robbed from them. Inside the church... And so, how, like, Paul, seriously, like, how can you say that? And, and actually, here's how. And you just, just stay with me. It's actually very redemptive. Our English Bibles, again, back to sort of grammar stuff here, um, are, are, are translations from Greek. You all know this, especially if you've been around me. I'm always parsing Greek words, and you're taking notes, and well, I knew a new Greek word now. It's great. And so, uh, and so, what that means is the passage you have in front of you, whatever translation you have, unless you have a Greek Bible. How many have a Greek Bible? I know one or two people that go to Bethany that do. So Sean does. So unless you have a Greek Bible, was translated, and maybe even yours, was translated from an original manuscript. You don't have one of the original 
manuscripts of Paul, do you? Okay, good. I was like, I should sit down. And so the key is in that in the early days of the church, there are these groupings of Greek texts all over the ancient Near East, manuscripts kind of floating around like little papyrus scrolls, and they're kind of going around. And the oldest of those, the oldest manuscripts of Paul's letters, interestingly enough, if you were to read those, what you're going to find in them in verse 22, wife submit, doesn't actually have the word submit. It's not there. I have a Bible app called Accordance. And when you scroll over the word submit, because when you scroll over words in it, it'll show you the Greek. If I have a Greek translation open next to it, it'll show you the Greek words. I don't really read Greek that well. And I scrolled over this week, and it's not highlighting. I think something's wrong with my app, so I quit it, open it, quit it, open it. And then uh, the family ministry director, Bethany North, told me, I'm sitting next to her because she's preaching today at Bethany North. She's like, it's not even in there. I was like, oh. <laughs> so submit's not there. It's, there's, there's no verb in verse 22. Like, verse 22 doesn't have a verb. And so if you just took the original Greek, translated it literally, here's what I did. This is what it would say. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Period. That's verse 22. And the word submits out there, which is lost on us as English readers because English rules require verbs. And so they borrow the, they borrow the verb that from verse 21, the previous subject really from verse 21, for verse 22 just to make it more readable, Right? But Greek doesn't do that, interestingly. Greek doesn't do that. And, and there's actually a couple reasons for that. There's a, a grammatical and a theological reason. The grammatical reason is you leave the verb out of a sentence. It was a typical kind of Greek grammatical way of, of, of it's like a literary device. Like you make a statement without a verb. Usually it's an overarching or key statement, like in verse 21, submit to, to one another out of reverence for Christ. You make an overarching key statement, and then in the next statement you just infer the verb. Okay. You don't include it. You just take the verb from what came before. I'll get back to that. What's theologically important about that is uh, actually one of the commentators on Ephesians that I really have loved, Marcus Bart. He says this. It's sort of like Paul's version of an exemplary gratia. You know, the EG, that abbreviation. What's the difference between IE and EG? I have no idea. But it's EG, which means for example. Um, And so Bart says, Paul's for example in verse 21 is intended to communicate an all-inclusive and radical mutuality for all relationships that follow. It's an overarching statement, verse, verse 21. In other words, for example, let me tell you about marriage. Let me tell you about parenting. Let me tell you about the system of slavery that you're caught in. See, for example, the submission of the wife, in other words, is only commanded within the frame of submission, mutual submission, uh, the same submission of her husband's servant love. They're the same. They're equal. There's not, there's not a difference between the wife's submission and the man's submission. Not intended. The child's obedience is, this, is intended to be the same, though a little different, than the, than the parent's tender leadership. Right? We don't think of obedience and leadership as the same, but they're just same, different, same coin, different sides. The slaves and masters' attitude toward each other is supposed to be exactly the same. Yeah, Paul's saying the system is broken. I can't blow the whole system up. So live within it as Christ. Mutual dignity. You're both image bearers. You both have to live within this broken system. So here's how to do that. In other words, the, the sub- submission, the idea, the practice of it, has to inform every relationship. It's not just for the wife, just for women. It's for everyone. Everyone's being called to submit. Submit to one another, y'all, they would say in Texas. Submit to one another, y'all. Like everyone in the room, submit to one another. It's the key for all the relationships. It's the governing principle for all relationships within the body of Christ. They're always intended to be mutual. That's the point, okay? 
And this is why what Paul says in verses 20 to 30, I think, is so profound. Okay? And this is the stuff to the husbands. Uh, and we never get there because we stop at verse 21. We don't want to read this stuff about wives submit. And we don't get to 28 where he says, in the same way, do you hear that? In the same way. It's not different. It's the same. Same submission. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. Not really. They feed it. They care for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, then he quotes from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one. This is a profound mystery. Oh, and by the way, I'm talking about Christ and his church. So I'm not really even really talking about marriage, <laughs> by the way. It's like Paul saying, okay, listen, let me put the cookies on the lowest shelf for the guys in the room, okay? Because I know you don't get all the grammatical stuff, all the theological stuff for the guys. Just the guys. No, I'm a guy. So I know it's confusing. Let me just put it in basic terms. Real simple. You're to love your wife, your children, and you're to be responsible for those you're in care over, you have authority and leadership over. You're to, be, to protect them as if they're you, as if they're you. It's an unambiguous echo of Jesus, actually, when he says the entire law in the Gospels, the entire law, all the law, all the Old Testament can be fulfilled in one command. Remember this? Love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. Love those in your life as if they're you, as if they're you. Don't hate on yourself. You wouldn't wouldn't do that. I mean, some people do. They're really broken. But don't hate on yourself. Protect those in your life honor those in your life, serve those in your life, care for them, cherish them as if they're you. He's saying there's a mystery in the church within the body of Christ. There's a mystery that when two people are married, when a child's born into a family, when people are developing relationships around their work and their society, even when it's broken, they are becoming one flesh. There's no division. There's no pulling back. There's no pulling away. There's no us versus them, right? Republicans versus Democrats, blacks versus whites, male versus female, old versus young. There's none of that in the body of Christ. As he says back in chapter uh, 2 of Ephesians, one, 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 one. That's the only number Paul had in his vocabulary. Always one, one new humanity, one flesh, one body, one church. A sort of oneness that Paul says is a mystery. And so let me be frank with us. <laughs> We've really struggled with this one. And I'm, I mean, us, Bethany, us, church, for generations, inside of marriages, as we parent our kids, we kind of go our own way, isolated Christians in an isolated world, and we try and parent online through Facebook. You know, we, we rant at people across the aisle from us on places like Facebook. We don't understand oneness. Uh, and then as adult children, we tend to honor our parents, not in relationship with other people doing the same. We struggle with people that are not like us, uh, people we deem other. And Paul's saying there is no other, you know, uh, there's only one. So love those in your life as if they're you. Uh, which I'll say, just to finish, is an invitation that can only be embraced <laughs> if you get this last point. Live them out. Live that out within this last point. So you have the power, spirit, principle, mutual submission. Here's the person. And this is, you guys know this because you know this is coming. So the person that must define every relationship. And we see this actually throughout Ephesians 5 and 6, all throughout, coursing through the section, woven in his instructions to spouses, parents, slaves, masters. It's just throughout the letter. It's throughout all of Paul's letters. That's why I love Paul's letters. And the theme is this. Relationships are really about Jesus. They're about Jesus. 
Christ is the definition, the definition of what it means to be in Christian relationship. Christian is little Christ. You are little Christs. And so Christ must be in the midst of your relationships. Duh. (laughs) So how, how does Paul say it in verse 21? Submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. And by the way, reverence is the Greek word for fear, phobos. And this is not spooky fear or fear of punishment, but awe and wonder at who Christ is and what he did, and that he's capable, if you read other places in Paul's letter, of expressing his very self through you today. You're sitting here today, Paul says in the Colossians, he is expressing his life through you. Church, he's expressing his life through you. If 2,000 years ago, dude who lived and died on a, like, 33 years old, that should blow you away a little bit, that he's actually expressing himself through you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that he can do that. And then he says, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as what? As the Lord. As, not just like in the way that Jesus does, as the Lord. As if your wife or your husband is the Lord, because Christ is in them. Hope of glory revealed. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Six, ch- chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, a problem verse, 6, 4, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters out of respect and fear and with sincerity of the heart just as you would obey Christ. And by the way, that just as. This is the connection. This is the key. Whenever you see, this is the link, like a hyperlink. Whenever you see just as in the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, it's a hyperlink. Every time Paul says just as, he's, refer- he's pointing us back to Jesus. He's saying just as. Remember Jesus? Remember the stories of Jesus? I'm not pointing back to the Old Testament, though he quotes the Old Testament. I'm not pointing back to the Ten Commandments, though I love the Ten Commandments. I'm not calling you to a religious or or ethical or moral code, a new one. No, 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 no. Jesus. Every aspect of your family, work life, Christian body life, entire society, every relationship needs to be redefined uh, in relationship with Jesus. And, And it has the potential, by the way, to be redeemed by Jesus every relationship. Just as Jesus Christ has done something extraordinary for you and for me, lived for me, my personal Savior, which good evangelicals will say, just as much as that's true, (laughs) Paul is saying Jesus has the power to redeem, restore, and renew every relationship. Not just your relationship with yourself and your personal Jesus, but every relationship in the world, in the cosmos your relationship with your spouse, even though there's bitterness and unforgiveness, your relationship with your kids, even though there's distance and hurt, with those that sit across, and I'm doing this not because there's like Republicans and Democrats, but those that sit across the political aisle, uh, where there's been racial division, where there's deep systemic issues that continue to marginalize people and they anger you, just as Jesus Christ has done something for you, He's done something for every one of those categories, those relationships, those broken areas. He did something extraordinary on the cross, which is make healing, reconciliation, renewal, life available to all, as Luke says. All people, all generations, all situations. Christ has the power to redeem and restore and renew everything. And so, friends, that should blow you away. 
like light in dark places, that's Jesus. You have the power within you to bring light into dark places. Hope where there seems to be nothing but hopelessness, you have the hope within you to be hope in hopeless situations. Peace and reconciliation where there just seems to be only hatred and fear, you have the peace of Christ within you. He's given that to you to be, to be peace in very broken situations. It's mind-blowing stuff, and that should propel us as the people of God for all that Christ has done, all he is, to then translate his character into his presence, into as many relationships as we possibly can. Like, we should leave here today and say, I want to translate Christ, leverage all of my resources and my talents and my gifts, what's Christ-like in me, whatever it is. It might be a small amount. It might be a large amount into others for others. I want to do that. That's what it means to live as Christ. So that, so that 2 Corinthians 3, I'll finish with this. Paul says, so that as we live in relationship, we all, seeing Christ, experiencing Christ, might be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's what, that's what infuses every relationship if we'll let Christ do it. And that's the hope of this passage. And so here's what I want to invite us to do in response. Something different today uh, for communion. Um, we typically take communion, come forward. Some people do it with their families, and we'll have a station and a station, and there's a gluten-free station. We're going to do it. You see the room's a little different today. Um, we have stations on either side of the stage and then one in the back. Everything's gluten-free today. And here's what I want to invite you to do. In groups of two to four, just for the next several minutes, I'm going to invite you to pray with those around you. It could be like spouses with a person behind you that isn't in your family. Uh, Kids will come back at some point and join you. I want you to pray around. You can't do all this, but begin. Three important categories. Pray for marriages, because, you know, I was talking about marriages. There's a lot of people that are in marriages today or that are longing for marriage and and are, are experiencing struggle. Marriages. Pray for the children of our church. Some of you are visiting today. Saw just lots of kids get up. Pray for those kids, okay? And pray for those parents of those kids. And then finally, uh, I want you to pray around issues of injustice. Slavery being one of those, a type. But there, and there's immense issues of slavery in the world today. But pray around an issue of injustice. So you can pick one and say, hey, let's just pray together around an issue right now, together for a few minutes. And then here's what I want you to do. So you're going to do that. Uh, it'll be just kind of prayer happening. With those two to four people, I'd like you to go to one of the tables and commune and serve each other, okay? So you'll come, these three here. So for example, come to the table, take a cracker, dip it in the, the cup, and present to each other the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins and for the sins of the world, okay? And that's how we'll do communion. We'll have three songs kind of going during that, so it'll be a little more extended time. So don't worry about rushing. You can go through this. Kids will join. It's going to be good. Let me pray. God, thanks for the chance we have to commune now, to um, be your body, to work out, begin to work out salvation, as Paul says uh, in Philippians, with a sense of fear, which is awe and wonder, trembling, like, God, what are we approaching right now? Um, Your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. Thank you this immense gift. Thanks that you're expressing your life through us now. These crackers and juice, they're merely that, but we know your presence is infusing them even now. And so thanks for expressing your life through them. 
entering into our lives profoundly um, and then equipping us to be the presence of hope in Seattle. Thank you. And to that end, God, we, we come asking your spirit to go ahead of us in our prayers as well as in our time of communion. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.